Welcome to the Steel and Glory podcast, where we discuss the lively world of historical fencing and everything else related to the sword arts around the globe. And now for today's instructor. In the short list of sword channels on YouTube, you'll find Michael Thomas and his brother Nick running the ever-popular Academy of Historical Fencing channel. I don't have the chops to ask for Michael's time, but he warmingly gave it anyway, especially right when I had started and didn't have anything produced at the time of his recording. Michael G. Thomas, he is a science fiction novelist from the United Kingdom. His best-selling Star Crusades series has sold in excess of 100,000 copies and continues to draw in new fans every month. As well as a strong interest in science fiction, Michael also writes horror fiction, including the popular Zombie Dawn trilogy, co-written by his brother Nick S. Thomas. As well as a prolific writer, Michael is also a well-known historical martial artist. He is the co-founder of the prestigious Academy of Historical Fencing and teaches traditional armed and unarmed European martial arts. His specialty areas are teaching the use of the medieval two-handed longsword and the German long knife. His academic background is as varied as his writing, with his first degree in computing and advanced degree in classical studies and more. He has studied in Newport, Bristol, and Bath, and is also a qualified secondary school teacher to boot. In recent years, he has undertaken substantial research in the fields of artificial intelligence, as well as Greek and Byzantine military history. My interview with Michael took place April 6th of 2023. I'm ever grateful to Michael for allowing me to have him as a guest, and we had a lot of fun. Ladies, gentlemen, I give you Michael G. Thomas. Michael Thomas, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me on there. That's a, I really appreciate it. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, so it's, it's a great honor to have you on. Okay, so really quickly, first off, um, why historical fencing? Um, oh, I suppose the, the thing with historical fencing is I think children sort of, you have two types of children. You have the children that love swords and the children that don't love swords. Um, and I, I think I think most children love swords. They love films with swords in. They love cartoons. They love uh, reading books that have got swords in. So um, I, I, th I think intrinsically, a lot of people are really into swords anyway. Um, in terms of what happened to me, and um, apart from generally uh, generally being interested in swords, I started reenactment in the 90s. Uh, I think that's a route a lot of people took in sort of the early years of kind of modern HEMA. Mm. Um, so yeah, I went. To, I started an English Civil War reenacting. Uh, my brother as well. So the two of us, even though he's ten years younger than me, so I turned up in my late teens, early twenties, and there was Nick, sort of twelve years old, holding a pike. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> so we, yeah, started reenactment in the early nineties. Um, did that for a decade or so um, until that kind of finally faded, and we got into other things. Um, I went Can I ask you a question? Of course. What side were you on in the Civil War? Royalists. Absolutely. I wanted to be royalist. I wanted to be royalist. But fortunately, uh, we had to, we had to go for Parliament. Um, the 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 first regiment that we came across, as is probably historically realistic, um, the first um, the first regiment that came recruiting was the <laughs> was the Parliamentarian Army. 
Um, so we ended up joining the Roundheads. But we really wanted to be with the Royalists. Um, but if we'd given it more than thirty seconds thought, we would have we would have got Royalist. There you go. Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, we, so we we joined up with that. So I started with the pike, moved up through musket. Um, I, I remember my first sword fight was Old Serum and Old Hillfort, um, which would have been probably nineteen ninety five, maybe ninety four. Um, I just remember using a hanger for the first time, having no idea, just running at somebody forward, rolling over the top of them down a hill. Um, and it sort of kind of went on from there until we stopped. Um, and then um, we sort of uh, didn't really do any fencing for a couple of years. Uh, I met my uh, sort of partner, uh, Pamela, and we were talking, she's really into Lord of the Rings, sort of really big into fantasy and sci-fi, talking about things we've done in the past. Um, the swords came up. I thought, holy crap, why don't, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> um, why don't That's we... Okay. Uh... <laughs> Um, why don't we have a re look at that? But rather than the reenactment part, why don't we just meet up and fight? So we made contact with some of our old friends from sort of our reenactment days, um, sort of booked a hall, bought some weapons, no armor, no masks, um, and just started sparring. Sort of, so we started off with six people me, my brother, Pamela, and three others. So we're sort of like the original six. Um, started just hacking away. Eventually, somebody had the smart idea of introducing a fencing mask. So, so people, you know, may, maybe lived, Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it just sort of moved from there. We sort of it was it was private. Nobody did invite anybody, but a few people we knew wanted to join. Uh, we did that for about a year, and then um, in two thousand six, uh, we decided to sort of go. Uh, I wouldn't say it's not professional, but to go public. So we came up with a name rather than just a generic name that we had for booking the hall. Um, and basically put it out there if anybody wanted to join. We went to Freshers at the college, got all the students for the first year, and off we went. So it was sort of a journey starting with um, sort of reenactment in the 90s, um, slight pause, and then deciding we want to get back to that because we really did like the fighting. You know, when me and Nick were there with that, we were sort of musketeers, so we had all of our, you know, all our gear, had our um, phylum muskets. But we used to fire off our ammo as quickly as we could, so we could just go straight to the swords because we, we didn't really care about firing um, blank muskets at people. We wanted to, you know, wanted to hit them with steel. <laughs> um, and if you can find there are pictures, I've got, I've got a few of them um, of the two of us on the um, inside Chapstow Castle in about 1998. And there's the two of us on, on the battlement, and Nick's there with a the sword in each hand. Um, I'm there with my musket, and I'm about to draw my sword, and it's just any opportunity to start hacking and slashing with swords um and that's the sort of the origin the very shortened version of the origin anyway i love it that's that's fantastic man i i yeah i'm in a way i'm jealous because man i was just thinking man, where, where was i in 1998 where was it in 1999 and uh yeah uh sword fighting <laughs> that, but, you, but, you, you, but you could never have found it you could have got to your 60s or 70s well, you're not there yet, but you could. You know, one day you'd be in your 60s or 70s, and you might see somebody. They might be talking about something that happened 10 miles away, or in American terms, maybe 100 miles away from where you are. Um, that did this thing decades ago, and you didn't even know about it, and you completely yeah. missed it. Yeah. Um, and and if you did it back then, you probably wouldn't know, because mm -hmm. we didn't have access to social media. Um, for all, for all of its sins, it's a great way of connecting with people that are interested in the same stuff as you. You could even post now on Facebook and say, "Oh, I wish I wish I could use, you know, a sword like in Lord of the Rings." And somebody yeah. would probably pipe up and say, "Well, I saw this guy called Nate, and he's got this thing. He was talking about it." 
Um, and you go, you go and find out about it. And a week later, you're going to be swinging a sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it's amazing, isn't it? It is amazing. Super powerful tool. Yeah. Could you imagine like in the eighties or nineties that if someone described what social media was, wouldn't it seem magical? Um, I suppose without, without actually seeing it, it would certainly seem magical. <laughs> um, yeah, in, in the 80s, I, I often think you watch you watch films. I remember back when I was a kid in the 80s, when I was a teenager, well, oh, yeah, teenager in the, in the, at the end of the 80s. Um, and, and, and you think if you wanted to know anything, uh, you, had to, you had to go to a library and find out about stuff. But, um, but there, there was no way to get hold of this information, no way to communicate with the person in the town next to you. That had the same interest in the same kind of swords as you, uh, and unless you were in a club or something at a school, or you were in a right. sports club, and you happened to go to another area and meet them, you'd never know. Maybe if it was on TV, you might see it occasionally, but that's it. Right, and if it wasn't in your library, you just there was no way you would know about it unless you knew somebody who knew somebody who actually had that. And yeah, even, it, even 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 into the nineties, I, I remember in the nineties um, doing research. I don't remember what the research was for, um, but I remember having to go to Cardiff, which is our sort of local capital in Wales, um, going to the kind of, going to Cardiff Library, um, where they had the all of the indexes for the internet. So, so back then, before the search engines, before even sort of stuff like Alta Vista and Yahoo, or whatever whatever search engine of choice you were using, um, there there was no search engine that people were using. So, if you wanted to go and find out about a company in the US somewhere. You had to go to the library, find an index or a catalogue of websites, uh, write them all down in your book, and then go home and then sort of uh, log on to whatever BBS you were going to try and use or, and, and try and connect to a website. You know, they're probably using Telnet to get there or something. Oh, an absolute pain in the backside. Uh, and, of course, printed material, ridiculous. It's out of date the minute it was put to paper. Um, so yeah, no, no way of finding out. Um, and and that's, that's only why we were able to start in the early 2000s it's because we could reach out and contact people that we, you know, we that we that we already knew, mm-hmm. um, that there still wasn't a network, so we couldn't just sort of just put a message out to anybody wanted to use a sword. And where would you put it? Yeah, where would you put it? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Taking <laughs> that out in the paper, but that was so expensive. Like it just it didn't make any sense for a club to do that. No, and, and a lot of clubs, ours included, don't run as a profit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we run as an as basically as an amateur club. You know, we have what, our own jobs to do. Mm-hmm. So there's not like there's a huge pile of surplus money to spend on advertising. No. So um, yeah, you have no way of contacting people. So yeah, it is a, it is a, it makes a big difference, especially now. It's it's pretty epic. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that man, that, that is a great story. That that is so cool. Uh, I can just, we need to see some photos or something of you guys in the early years. You know, uh, rabble rousing on the castle. Ramparts. Oh, I have. <laughs> I, I do have some photos. I've got. I've got a photo of Nick um, on the beach at uh, Burnham, uh, which is in the west. Uh, I say the west country. It doesn't mean anything, does it? Uh, the southwest of England, not far from Bristol. Um, and we were doing a, a battle reenactment on the beach there, and they dug um, earthworks and bits, a bit like um, a bit like the fortification in Glory, um, Fort, Fort Wagner, you call it, don't it? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, the, Mass- the, the Massachusetts Regiment, in fact. Yeah. Uh, and it looked very much like that. So they built huge earth ramparts on the beach, and there's a photo of Nick, and he must be about twelve, maybe thirteen or so, and he's standing in a in a breach in the in the sand defences. 
and he's got a lobster pot on that's way too big for him, so it hangs down to about here. Um, and he's, he's standing, I, can't, I think he's standing there with a pike. I can't remember, but anyway, he's standing in the breach. Um, and I think, yeah, we were on opposite sides because I was supposed to be trying to get inside. Yeah. But yeah, we, we've got photos from back then. It's quite, it's quite funny to see. Uh, and saying that, we still have um, some of the um, background music somewhere. Oh, I don't know if you can see that sword. Yeah, yep. uh, that one there. That's the second sword I ever bought. So that's that's from I think nineteen ninety six or seven. In fact, wow. that's the sword I used in my very first sword fight. Wow, that is. Even thought about that, uh, which is um, it's made by uh, armor class actually. That is cool. You know, I bet you. I mean, we don't have the time today, but I bet you could tell a story of each of those swords, can't you? Uh, yeah, they all. Everyone has a story, and they're just the ones that are left. They, yeah. um, we, we, we do tend to sell on any sword that we're not using, because um, our members are always after fresh swords, yeah. and you can't keep them all. When you get to fifty swords, and you think, "But I need more," and I've got more ordered now, and you just keep cycling them. You can't hang on to them, but yeah. uh, but there are some like uh, like my hanger there that you know it's it's an heirloom. The kind of the hilt is a bit ragged, but you think you know it's nearly it'll be thirty years old quite soon in a oh, couple wow. of years. Um, but sword terms, it's not that old, but it's, you know, it's been in hundreds or thousands of fights. Yeah, that's fantastic. But, uh, I will, I will, I will find, I will dig out some photos for you. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that is, that is so cool. You guys never grew up, did you? Oh, and the really crazy thing, um, uh, and it's a, it's a strange thing now is everything is so well recorded now because we've all got digital devices on us. And mm -hmm. um, back then, and, uh, and it sounds like it's so long ago, well, I suppose it is. Uh, but sort of mid, mid to late 90s, uh, everybody was shooting on film. You only took photos if you intended on taking photos that day. You yeah, didn't just right. say, oh, I'll just whip my 35 mil out of my pocket and take a photo. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, our reenactment days, they were just, we were just lucky people took photos. And even the first years of, our, um, of the AHF were so poorly um, sort of supplied with photographs because we were teaching, so we couldn't take the photos. Yeah, uh, and few, even then, few people didn't have digital cameras. Now I had one in '98, which was really bad—a one megapixel digital camera. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, just the, photo, the the photographs weren't there, so there's, right. there's there's a lot that wasn't recorded. Oh well, memories. Yeah, yeah, we'll be remembered. Swords on the wall. Yeah, swords on the wall. The ones that are left. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> well, uh, Michael, let me switch gears really quick because sure. um, you're a super prolific writer and uh i mean let me just read this here and these are these are series these aren't just um one-offs right we've got star crusader star crusades zombie dawn star legions star cadets robot commandos mech legions <laughs> cyber commando strikers commandos guardian war heroes of world war one night hunter war masters void wars i mean you have so many books and and i guess the the most current season uh, the most current series is uh, void wars is that correct it is yes um it, it's the only one i've been working on for the last i think for, i've been working on it for a year now i think yeah. it's about a year but um yeah there are quite a few um most of them i think probably half of them are all part of the same sort of universe uh which was my uh, sort of star series that there is there is definitely the word star mentioned quite a bit there but uh, <laughs> There you don't is. make it. You don't make it too complicated. You need to make sure people know what it's about. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it is a lot of books. Uh, I, to be honest, I'd write. I'd like to write 
um, far fewer books, but um, it's it, it's 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 one of those things that where people buy a book, they want they want a sequel. Yeah. Um, so you you've got to keep putting them out. It's my full time job, um, as is my brother as well. So we're both full time writers. It's a family business. Um, so there's four of us all together working on it, and we write a novel about every two months. So yeah, we are. I think. I, I think it's 75 books I've done so far. Um, but yeah, the, it is a lot. It is a lot. Of, I think it's just under 6 million words. Um, but I'm only on my second keyboard so far. So, <laughs> although the current one is wearing quite badly. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we were given a good task. But yeah, it's um, the, the new series, Void Wars one, is um, the Void Wars bit actually is the least interesting bit of the whole book because the, the name of the series is kind of generic. Um, but the um, but the idea was the individual books would be much more interesting, um, and I, I wanted to combine. Uh, to be fair, there's a lot of World War One and World War Two elements in all kinds of sci-fi, and I've used them an awful lot myself. Yeah. Uh, but, but I thought with this new series, rather than kind of beating about the bush, I would I would actually just transpose World War Two uh, into a sci-fi sort of setting, so that there are pre-built um, stories and characters and relatively famous people uh, th throughout the various events. And I thought I'd just recreate World War II um, as a sci-fi series. And it's, it, was, it was a bit of a risk because the first book um, was a bit strange. You know, it's got Bismarck on the title, on the cover, and a huge ship that's supposed to be the Bismarck. Well, it's supposed to be. It is the Bismarck. <laughs> um, and it's a little close to another ser uh, series in terms of sort of style and naming. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it proved really popular. I was, I was, I was very happy with it. Um, I didn't start at the start of the war, um, mainly because I wanted something that would grab people's attention. So you need a kind of a big event. Um, and um, loads of people have heard of the Bismarck. It's a sort of a, an infamous ship. Um, well, infamous to us anyway, but, um, but anybody else, it's a name a lot of people know about. Yeah. Uh, so I did that one as the first book. And the whole book is just literally about um, the, uh, the first operation of the Bismarck, which I'm glad to say was the last. Spoiler, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you know your history, it's kind of not really a spoiler. But see, what's what's really interesting is that uh, just the the overlay, right, of of uh, of something like that that you do. It's like if you know history, you kind of know what's going to happen anyway. But it's really fun to see what you do with mm. it. Yeah, you can fiddle around the edges. Um, you know, the the basic plot elements need to stay. Um, strangely, one of our uh, ancestors um, served aboard the Hood which was sunk by the Bismarck. Oh, wow. um, but um, he wasn't, thankfully, he wasn't aboard while uh, it was engaged, so, oh, which good. is good news. Yeah. Oh, good for me, anyway. But, yeah. um, uh, but, but it's an interesting side note. We got a postcard that he sent in the late 20s when he was serving on the herd. It was a big, prestigious role back then. But, oh, uh, yeah, it is, it is, it is, it is an, interesting, uh, an interesting thing. And uh, I've, I've had a lot of people contact me afterwards uh, and they said they really that they really enjoyed the the detail. So I've tried to keep it where there is de um, detail that's interesting to the story. I've tried to keep it as much as possible. So names, um, e even sort of designations of aircraft, um, uh, anything uh, sort of recorded, sort of radio message wise, that's interesting to the story. Try to reuse as much as possible. But I had to throw in a few other other tidbits, um, such as like the, the the last engagement with the Bismarck. Which just a spoiler alert before I say anything, just in, in case you don't know what happened back then. But um, I, I basically embellished the last um, kind of the last engagement with the Bismarck, because you know having a crippled ship circling around it and blasting it to pieces, 
Yeah, it's it's good for the Royal Navy, but it's it's not the best ending. So I threw in a few extra ships, just pads it out a little bit more, um, just just to jazz it up a bit. Which, to be fair, any film that's made about a historical event is probably changed significantly more than I did. Oh yeah. Uh, even though mine has turned into a giant spaceship. Um, so yeah, I, I did try and keep it as close as possible. Um, I finished the, um, the Pearl Harbor uh, novel. It came out, I think, last month, um, oh, and I um, and I followed the story as close as I could. There did a load of research. Really interested uh, with the the Japanese spies in Hawaii. Um, I didn't even know anything about the Japanese spies there, and it's, and and that's a really interesting sub story in itself. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I included all of that, all the kind of the um, all the naughtiness of uh, scooping around. Um, sort of Ford Island and the rest. But so I put all the details in. Um, there's a number of sort of the, you know, quite famous, okay, more than quite famous, very famous sort of Americans that were involved. But um, yeah, just tried to put in as much as I could. So people know, as you say, people that know the story will be reading it and they'll be waiting. You know, they'll be thinking like you know, they've got a particular battleship. They know what happens to it. Um, but they also know some of the details, some of the characters, some of the events that happened to it. Um, and they're kind of the waiting to see. So I, I try and include as many as I can without it just being regurgitating all of the details one after the other. Yeah. No, I, I do. I, th I think that's super clever. And, um, you know, uh, it's it's cool. In, in, when people figure that out, it's... Uh, how do I say this? Uh, history is important to pass on to the next generation, right? And so if you can make it into something that is interesting for them, Right, because uh, on TV, there's at least in the states, there's just endless documentaries, black and white, about World War II, and a lot of people are turned off. Just like a lot of people are like, "Oh, great, another history about the Roman Empire." Well, I could, you know, I can eat it all up, and that's fine. But for you know, some people, there's still things that they need to to learn um, about that because they still affect us. And um, so anyway, yeah, no, I, I think that's a good thing that you're doing, and it and it's fun, and it's like. And you mentioned Pearl Harbor, and as an American, I'm like, oh my gosh, I gotta, you know, what, what did he say? What's, what's gonna happen? So it works. Um, it works. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's and it's a big event anyway for World War Two. I appreciate it's a bigger event. Actually, I'd say it's a bigger event for Americans, but uh, we, we, we were on the back. I say we we're on the back foot. Way worse than the back foot. We were in dire oh, straits. Yeah. Excuse me, let's get a drink. Um, so yeah, big, big for Americans, but really big for us as well because we've actually got a friend in the fight. Um, which until then we really did not. We, it was not not right. um, which is an understatement. I appreciate. I but, um, but yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I, I know a lot of events um, are, are going to sort of hit people harder than others. Um, and I'm doing the Battle of Moscow at the moment, and it's really weird doing the preliminary parts of the Battle of Moscow mm -hmm. and all of the fighting going through Ukraine, Belarus, and all of the names that you're going through in the story are all the names that we've seen in the news over the last year. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's really weird. You know, you've got people fighting through um, towns, villages, cities, and rivers that we all know about now because we've been watching them on the news. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it's really weird writing about it, I have to admit. Um, but, um, yeah, it is, it, is, it, it is important stuff. I don't mean my books, um, but well, they are important. But, <laughs> but more of to me, they are. But, um, but yeah, definitely. And also in terms of history and documentaries, most of them are so rubbish. The amount of, you know, sort of, you know, World War II in colour sort of for the third time, and it's <laughs> the same re um, regurgitated footage and somebody getting really hyper and excited while they're describing what's happening. And you go and watch the Nidal documentaries in style, in style, instead, 
um, about World War Two and, and the Great War, and, and the detail and the research is so much better. You know, the the I know we're going back to YouTube again, but you can find such good content on YouTube, way way better than um, traditional documentaries, as long as you can find a good source. Um, but yeah, there's some outstanding documentaries. I know Nick. Go back to my brother. He's um and he's doing um a sort of Napoleonic series at the moment. It's going really nicely. Oh, uh, yeah. That sounds like a really dodgy um sort of ad for his books. No, uh, it's fine. But um, you know, I, but I know with his research, you know, he does loads and loads of traditional research. He's got heaps of books, and it's his subject. It's the thing he teaches in HEMA. But um, but the minute he gets to a particular um, event, so something in particular happens in Portugal, you'll be straight on the documentaries, watching them on YouTube, and and there's there's half a dozen sources that just write exceptionally good documentaries. Mm -hmm. um, and they're just a great source. Yeah, well, um, you know, I see. So the YouTube channel, right? Um, Nick seems to be, or at least I don't know, in my feed for whatever reason, Nick seems to be the front man. And you could tell he's very passionate about the Napoleonic era. And uh, he makes that uh, 1796 saver look really good. <laughs> you want to buy one of those, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> well, I kind of have a similar thing you know i got the d guard and all that um it's a, it's a really it's a really nice sword um and nick's got quite a collection of um 70 oh, i think he's probably got them in the video um a bit of his sort of personal collection but that new sharp that is, that is a really nice piece mm -hmm. um you know apart from the um kind of the the, the um, manufacturer's marking um just on the fort on the blade apart yeah. from that and that you wouldn't really be able to tell so it's just as well they put the marking on it to be honest <laughs> um, but so, yeah they are yeah it's, it's it's a it's a really nice piece yeah yeah no it, it looks really good and um you know just kind of getting back to to um some of his writings uh, about that subject you can hmm. tell that he's very very passionate about it so i mean who else to uh to uh read about uh you know that era in kind of a fun uh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. He's 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 sort of gone for historical fiction, and then yeah. and then put in you know a sort of flamboyant fencer. So it's a good opportunity to throw in sort of period weaponry, period yeah. training and sparring. So he's got all of that as much as, as much as humanly possible with the historical story, um, and that's going really well because we were both working on the same kind of stuff before. We were working on the um, sort of horror and science fiction. Um, it's like catnip. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it's difficult because we, we, we've done sort of sword-related novels, both of us, before, and they just haven't really caught on. And I, I did one um, called Masters of Defense the last year or the year before, which yes. I thought would really catch on with the HEMA community, and it's, um, it fell quite flat. Not so much. That's weird. Um, which was it basically, it was, it was like a zombie apocalypse story uh, at, a, at a big HEMA event. But <laughs> you think, when you go to a HEMA event, every, almost everyone I've been to abroad, so when we've gone to Vienna... And you're sat with a load of um, Austrians and Germans and loads of other people, and you, everybody's been drinking all night. And almost always, they they would love the opportunity to draw their swords um, and fight a horde of zombies coming into a big hall being used for an event. Um, but and, and yet the book they didn't seem quite so excited about. So, oh. so that, which is why you can you just can never tell. So we 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 keep experimenting with new series. I did this new World War Two one. Nick did his Napoleonic one. Uh, and they both seem to have resonated. Well, not they seem to. They have resonated um, with kind of readers, and they they're going for them. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's weird. Everyone likes a good zombie apocalypse. You know. Uh, so I've been meaning to ask you. It's really because um, 
I thought maybe at one point in my life I wanted to be an author, and maybe I'll do that later. But what I've discovered is I just don't have the patience to make the words look good and flow. <laughs> and uh, so one of the one of the things is is uh, how do you write um, a fight, right? So a sword fight. How do you like knowing what you know? How do you write that in a in a way that's interesting for a reader, especially one who may not understand? the mechanics of a sword fight like i think the first thing you've got to to remember if you think of every, every any good fight scene in a film that you've seen a really really good one is the actual fighting part is probably the least important part of it yes um, and i always say when people ask me about really good fight scenes which is a slight digression but i go for something like the fights with um, vader and luke in empire strikes back and the actual fighting is fine the, the choreography is decent enough but there's um, an emotion and drama um, for the scene, uh, so you've got the father and the son, and Man, you can see the storyteller right there. That's yeah. so absolutely true. I agree with you 100%. But the, the, the son is utterly outclassed. You can see Luke has no chance. Um, and it's only when sort of even when Vader gets enraged, and you can see he kind of lets rip and he's really hammering down, you know, rips his arm off and then stops. But the, the so the whole scene is epic, um, much like the one in Return of the Jedi as well, similar kind of scene. But the actual fighting, it's relatively straightforward. There's, there's, and in terms of describing the fight, um, the cuts are not that complicated, relatively simple cuts and parries. But there's the dialogue, the music, and the structure of the, basically the movement around the location, um, the way that kind of Luke is being forced um, sort of through the, belt, um, you know, through the base. So he's, he's basically giving up ground continually. Every time he tries to fight him, he just gets his backside kept really hard. Um, so that, that's all it anything but there's no mention really there of what they're even doing with the swords because it's not it's not really that important it's you know the choreography has to look good but um you say look at uh, some of the prequel fights which by by 2023 standards are looking a lot better but uh, but when they came out you know there's some good choreography there but where's the kind of the big emotional part of it you know the big story bit now, even Darth, even Darth Maul in his first fight in the first proper fight where he dies or he died in the film anyway. Um, but in it, the, the fight's choreography is excellent, way better than any of the choreography in the original films. But there's no kind of big emotional thing. You don't know anything about Darth Maul. You don't really care about him. He's a bit of a nobody. Um, whereas the whole Luke and Vader thing, you've got a proper, you've got, a, you, you find out there's a family connection. You can see that Vader doesn't want to kill him. He wants to, you know, he, he, he's trying to control him. Uh, and you can see Luke is desperate to help his friends, um, but he's a kid. You know, he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's given up on his training. He's, he's, you know, he's a youngster. He's the person you put in the front rank. You know, he runs in to fight, and he's probably going to die. Um, and that's, and, and I think in terms of writing a good fight scene, that's the bit that comes first. I'm not saying that my fight scenes are like that. I, I, I try to make them like that. But in yeah. terms of, in terms of writing a good fight, you need to get the, you need to get the kind of the. Um, the kind of themes and the emotion and the people, you know, are, are they scared? Are they confident? And it, you can think when you're sparring with somebody, you know, there's, there, there, there might be a little bit of apprehension, but, but you're never really going to have the fear. Uh, and yeah. I hope you never will have the fear because that's not why we do it. No. But there's not the fear or the connection or the, uh, or the consequences. So I think those are the important bits. And then with the sword, you can keep it really simple. You can have, think of the old Kurosawa films. Yeah, you can have a build-up that goes on for a minute, and mm -hmm. then one guy steps in, and you effectively just zornham straight in the face and kill him. Yeah, just draw the blade, slash straight, straight down. Well, that's an epic sword fight, and there's a single cut. 
you know, you could throw in a few more cuts. Maybe there'd be a parry. I know you come in with another cut, another parry, and then you t- and then you hit them. So you don't need a lot of cuts. Mm-hmm. And I think I think a lot of people get confused and say, "I want to see a lot of heat. I want to see more Hema in films." And sort of, you can use some elements from Hema if it if it helps the story. But um, throwing in a three-minute fight sequence uh, with loads of Hema moves, all you're doing there is um, a showcase for Hema moves. Mm-hmm. Is anybody that thinks a fight that goes that goes on for three minutes is it's probably missing the point of most fights. And most of the time, it's just a confused mess. Um, and somebody yeah. dies and gets hurt quite quickly. That's right. So, and and uh, that's the, the integral... I mean, that's that's kind of the problem, isn't it? Because with, with the real martial art, the idea is to subvert someone's idea of what you're going to do. You do it quickly, you do it powerfully, and you do it in a way that they don't expect. Well, physiologically, yeah. an audience sitting down, they can't see what's going to happen because the person who is physiologically amped up they can't see it either so good hema will never look good in film as far as i'm concerned i mean there's some tricks you could do but you know the martial art will always be mysterious to people who don't do it you can't just sit down and see it because it's like what just happened well the guy who just ate it didn't know either yeah so that's going going to say back to nick's books then having a sequence where you're training some soldiers and using swords and they're sparring or something well then in that case you can kind of describe the things that you're used to so you can go with all the details and then you can throw in some of those movements in the actual fighting scenes um and and i i've I've done you know loads of bits like that before but um but when it comes to the actual fight as 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 i tell our students all of the time you need to get really really good at the really really basic stuff so if you've got good footwork timing and distance and a really good cut one, if it's a military saber or a, a Zornhau saber, if it were most of the German stuff, that one cut and all the rest combined will be good enough against most people. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need all of the rest. Um, and the rest might be um, useful for the other 5 to 10% of the fights, but, um, but you need to get the basics working right uh, and working really well. Just the same as with boxing. In boxing, and if you've, if you've got footwork timing and distance and a really good hook, um, you're not going to beat everybody, but that's, you know, if you have to come across an average boxer comes up at you, you will demolish them with the basics if you're really good at them. Um, and I think yeah, with films right. as well, you can demonstrate um, the skills of a swordsman by not having to go through a three-minute fight. Um, so, no, you, like a scaramouche fight, you know, it's, yeah, it's great. It's, uh, in this, but, you know, you, you can watch an entire episode, a TV episode. You can probably watch some of the shorter Mandalorian episodes and Scaramouche fight would still be going on. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it's impressive choreography, but it's utter nonsense when it comes to an actual sword fight. There's really not that much drama to it. Um, or the, uh, the fights from the, on the Cliffs of Insanity. Um, you know, think, um, you know, you, you've got them fighting there, but it's the dialogue, it's the situation. The actual fighting's okay, but the whole scene is awesome. And the characters are awesome. The, uh, the monologuing is excellent. The sword fight is kind of secondary to what is actually happening in the fight. Yes. Yeah, the fight is the vehicle to show the virtue of each person. Yeah, yeah it's about them. It's about the characters. Otherwise, it's two stuntmen going at each other. Right. It's the uh, moment you learn that Enigma Montoya isn't really a villain. He's just kind of going along because he has a greater desire, which maybe is moralistic, right? He's going to avenge his father and you know, like all this stuff, and he's dedicated his life to all the all the things that we all really empathize with and um... yeah that's 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 the story you know i think it's um and it, it, it's all conflict and character mm. um which bizarrely kind of um, rotates me all the way back around with kind of the writing part um i suppose we are talking about writing to an extent anyway 
but um, um, when a, a college just after I finished at college, um, I sort of went into classics in a big way, and the um, and, and looking at sort of old Greek drama, um, you can see again it's all about the characters and the situations, um, and all of that combines with uh, and if you want to combine that kind of detail with some fancy swordplay can work really well. But without the characters and the scene setting and and, the, and some some kind of context, um, the, the sword fights they just they don't mean anything. Yeah, no, yeah, you, you, yes, yes, I agree. It, well, you said you know um, I'm not sure if you said Greek tragedy, but uh, Greek story. Yeah, yeah. So Greek drama, you know, tra tragedy is obviously a, quite a large part of it. There wasn't a huge amount of fighting, to be honest, in most of the comedy. But um, but the drama, it's you know, it's it's all about these these really they're not, they're not necessarily particularly complicated characters, but they've got motivations and they've got relationships with the rest of the people in the stories. Yeah, uh, and it's that kind of uh, it's that kind of thing that is. Oh, I just got somebody coming in. I'm recording. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So this is my way of uh, humble bragging to say, like, so I read the Iliad, and um, the Good interesting. Book. Yeah, yeah, uh, but you're right. The fighting, the actual fighting, that's a slog, and it's very detailed. And it's like even for me, someone who's interested in that, it was really gross and disgusting. Uh, it, it, it just it's felt really, like all these. It's really are. heavy. You think you've got it's, sort of um, Achilles on sort of the beach, and he's fighting, and you've got sort of, and often they're throwing rocks at each other. But then when they get to sort of their spear work, and they're describing, you know, the spear piercing their shields and piercing different parts of the body mm -hmm. um, yeah it is really graphic actually it's um, very graphic yeah yeah very and, and and you think the characters are all larger than life I mean, intentionally mm -hmm. so uh, and and memorable you know they, they they have stood the test of time yeah but, uh, but yeah the fighting part is definitely not the is not the thing that sticks in your mind is the most important part of that no it's the it's the brotherhood is talking about and this person did this and their their relationship is this and they go out and they're known for this part and you know that that's the interesting thing like all the like you say all the the people who are larger than life it's it's that um those relationships their motivations what they're doing there what the relationships are i said that three times already but yeah that's that's the key it's important. that's what makes it interesting yeah yeah definitely uh, and and iliad great i used to carry a copy of the iliad in my um, bag when i was at school um unfortunately my ink pot which sounds really old i just happened to use an ink pot but um, the, uh, it broke in my bag and spilled. It was the Alexander Pope, sort of the uh, poetic oh, version of the Iliad. Really nice 18, 1898 version. Um, I used to have in my bag. And the ink pot uh, leaked and leaked blue ink all the way in my bag mm -hmm. and all over the book. So um, all the pages are stained with blue ink now, <laughs> which really sucks. Yeah, it's a really good book. Does. Yeah, but it, it, it is a great book. It's, um, and, and the characters in it, they, and they're really good archetypes to use for people. Um, you know, there's there's so much detail on them, and and, and the the bitterness and the rivalry, and I, I did kind of pinch a lot of the elements from that. Mm. Uh, I did I did another historical series called. Um, I think you're in good company about that. Yeah, I just got to remember which series it is. Now. Yeah, yeah. Wait, it's not like I haven't done it. Before. I haven't done it before. I did um, another sci-fi series that was um, um, based on Xenophon and the Ten Thousand Mercenaries, uh, which that's is what cool. I, which is what that's what I did my thesis on was the on the Anabasis. But um, I thought I'd do a sci-fi series called Star Legions, which originally called the Black Legion, but Games Workshop sort of be using Black Legion quite a bit, so I changed it just just to make sure there were there were no imperial entanglements. 
Um, so, so I got rid of that. Went, went for Star Legions, but that was very much um, the story um, of the 10,000s sort of going into Persia, uh, trying to depose the king. Um, so I, and I included loads of historical um, sort of fighting in that. So I, I put a few conceits in there so that they'd have to be able to fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, in a similar way to Star Wars has conceits so that they use lightsabers. So you can have sword fights, otherwise they just use blasters all the time. So I, I had a few conceits, so they, they were using shields, not Dune-type shields. <laughs> but um, So they were using shields that worked much like an Aspis shield. Um, and then they had weaponry that they could use in a similar fashion to, to, uh, to spears. Um, and then I could take lots of elements from the Iliad and, and all of the details from uh, the Anabasis as well, which is a really good story. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's a really good story. And then I did a sequel to it as well, the spin-off, because uh, there's always a spin-off, um, um, which was um, um, set immediately afterwards, which was the kind of um, um, the rise of Sparta throughout Persia. Um, and that is actually an incomplete series. There's one more book to go on that. Yeah, wow. But uh, World War II has taken over, so that's on the back burner. Yeah, well, World War II takes over everything. <sighs> that's true. It is true. You've got, you've got to write what people want to read. Yeah, that's that's it. I mean, if, if you're making money, you got to give people what they want, right? Yeah, it's well, that's ultimately people say, you know, why do you write? And it's sort of, well, why do you work? You know, because I like to eat meat and I like to live in a house. <laughs> So in, um, so in which case I have to work, um, yeah. although I'm quite lucky and at least I get to do something I enjoy, um, which it's a lot wonderful. of people don't have, yeah, a lot of people don't have that luxury, but it yeah. does, it does mean, you know, I do have to churn the words out, you know, it's it, every day is at least 3000 words. Um, you know, I know people there out there that do write more, but it's 3000 words a day, five days a week. And, mm -hmm. and you have to do that. Um, six weeks, ideally to finish a book, but usually two months. Um, and yeah, just, just turn those words out, get the stories out. You know, I think a lot of people would find that pace really kind of um, shocking. And uh, so, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, as a professional writer, that's the kind of pace that you need to be setting for yourself, isn't it? Well, if you, um, if you hit, you know, if you hit 3,000 words a day, 15,000 words a week, you know, so if you think 15, you do four weeks, um, you've got your 60,000. Um, that's not enough really for a novel, but it's enough to form the basis of a novel. Mm -hmm. um, you need to get another week then, so another 15,000 words, get you up to 75. 75 is perfectly acceptable for a novel these days. Um, that's longer than, say, something like Starship Troopers, but nothing like a sort of a Lord of the Rings or a Harry Potter book. Uh, but more than enough for mass market paperbacks, or equivalents of now. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it just becomes just like anything else you do. You have a schedule. So, and I sit at my computer, I start just after nine o'clock. Um, I know I have to get a thousand words done by lunch. Um, so um, I, I usually aim to get sort of the first thousand done by sort of 11s, uh, have a cup of tea, um, yeah. then do maybe another, another um, 500 uh, to 750, have lunch. And then I've got the afternoon where I'm less productive. I write better in the morning. So I do another thousand to 1250 words in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's my base. And if you can do more than that, which if you get into it, if it's a, an action sequence, you can go up, you can double that in a day, no problem. If it's talking, <laughs> um, basically if it's not action, if it's anything other than action, uh, it takes a lot longer to write. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just have to do that. And it's it's one of those things people, they're always asking, how do you write? And it's, it's really lame because you, the answer you give them isn't the one they want. They want a magic formula and it's, how do you write? And I sit down, I load Word and I start writing. 
Uh, I know it doesn't help. It's like saying, how do you play the guitar? And you pick it up and start playing. Um, but, but, but with the guitar, you know, you have to learn how to do that first. Um, and you, you just have to force yourself to do it. Uh, I know maybe some people you know, wouldn't find that very comfortable. But, um, yeah, you just, you just got to get a, you know, um, a schedule. And I think knowing, because we're a small business, um, the three of us are writers and one's a full-time editor, and we have a sequence. So Nick, and I, I'm just finishing my book. Nick finished his book recently. So that's due to go out. He'll be starting, and he's, he's already started his next one. Um, we have a sequence. So if I don't finish on time, um, so if I'm running late, that will push Nick's book back. And it means the editor's got nothing to do for a week. So you know, we have to have the books finished to slot in so the next one can come out. But, uh, but you do get used to it. Um, and there are, and if you, again, if you go back to sort of classical literature, um, there are. Um, um, structures to stories and events that are timeless and that have always been used. Um, and even when you don't think about it, you still do it. And you write a fight scene and you, you, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Uh, it might come out of sparring that you've done, uh, a film that you saw, something you read in a book, uh, and the elements will fuse together and then you just put them on paper or on the screen. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, it's it's really cool. It just occurred to me. You guys have this really cool family business that you're doing and uh, that's really... That's really sort of timeless. I find that very fascinating uh, in, in a very uh, splendid kind of way. And uh, so, but, but quick question. I mean, you, get, you guys are pretty tight-knit, you and your brother, it sounds like. Hmm. And, um, and <laughs> uh, I, I have brothers. I have two brothers. And so I kind of understand a little bit about how that works. But uh, so you guys are, you know, you work close together. You run this school together. How do you guys settle spats? We don't have spats. There's a simple <laughs> way. Um, no, we, we, we've, um, you know, we don't live far away. And, um, you know, in in our terms, we're quite close in, in terms of distance. In American terms, we're basically next door. Yeah. I live about 12 miles away from Nick. Okay, uh, that's pretty close. So, so that, that's, you know, it's not sort of walking distance for the day, but close. Um, and until COVID hit, um, we sat next to each other when we worked. Now, we, we had a place in our local town where we had as our studio, which we, we closed down during COVID because we, everything, you know, we couldn't work there anymore. Right, right. So we closed it. We didn't use it for a year. Um, it was just an asset that was costing money. So we sold it and we, mm. we both work from home now. But uh, until then, we spent a decade sat next to each other. You know, we had a big L-shaped desk and it was in one corner. I was the other. <laughs> so and if I wanted to throw something at him, it hit him on the head and he was right next to him. I could hit him with a foam sword. He was that close. Um, <laughs> but no, we, we, we've, always, um, we've always done stuff together, you know, um, um, you know, he's 10 years younger, but we've, you know, we've, you know, we've been watching, you know, we were watching Schwarzenegger films in the 80s together. And I say that, and he was born in the 80s. So you appreciate how young he was watching Schwarzenegger films. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then up through um, reenactment, video gaming, um, you know, do all that kind of stuff. Um, I, uh, I talk to Nick every day, um, you know, work related, fencing related, or just we're doing a bit of uh, 40K or something. We'll be chatting about that. Yeah, uh, video nice. video comms makes life that much easier so um facetime every day there's always things for us to talk about we're fencing twice a week uh, like this weekend we'll be doing some 40k games on the saturday so you know, of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah you might, you might pop around halfway yeah i'm sure he will. Uh, yeah we, but we don't have um no, i don't mean we've, we've never really had any an argument about anything um, and and it's the same with the club as well. We don't have any arguments there because we decided at the start that we were we were going to operate it as a dictatorship of two. 
So um, yes. there, 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 will, there will be no no democracy um, unless somebody wants to step up and do the work, which nobody ever has offered nobody to do. Ever does. No, so, I think that's great that you guys, that, you know, if, if someone's like, hey, well, why do we do it this way? And the other bros just cuts cuts them off at the pass, right? Just like, ah, come on, let's do it this way. <laughs> It's, it's quite simple. If Nick has an idea and I don't like it, we don't do it. And if mm-hmm. I have an idea and Nick doesn't like it, we don't do it. Perfect. So unless, unless we agree, um, so the, there's no there's no argument then. Uh, it's it's quite simple. It's either unanimous or it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So you know, we were talking about bringing in gradings. Uh, it, we've gone through phases since 2006 as, as to whether we want kind of gradings and ranks. And they kind of come and go because you know, other groups sometimes do it and sometimes don't. Mm-hmm. We talk about it, and That's but we can never we yeah, and we but every time we do it, it's always nah, we can't both quite decide it's a good idea. So it's now nah, we won't do it then, um, and that way there's never an argument. There can't be an argument. Um, everything's quite straightforward. If there, if there's a decision to be made that other people might want to get involved with, we talk about it first. We decide you know what the options are that we will accept, yeah. and then we'll yeah. ask other people. But it's People don't want it anyway. Um, they they come to a fencing club. They want a fence. They don't want to take part in some kind of sort of politics and messing around of organising a club. Well, most right. people do anyway. Um, so we don't we don't we just don't we don't have that structure. And we set it up. We do all of the work. You know we, um, you know we record all the videos for YouTube, um, which you know are just are just thrown out there for the community in general. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, your website's quite the resource too. Um, you know, I I have used it. And it yeah, thank you. I'll just say no, that. Okay. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, we we we've got some more stuff that needs to go on there actually. But um, yeah, we we we, we but basically, our, we we pay for the band the bandwidth, um, mm-hmm. which is and it's so cheap these days anyway. It's not like right. it used to be. So we we just dump stuff up there. We give away as much as we can because um, again, we don't run it as a business. Right. Um, all we ever need the money for is to cover our costs. As long as our costs are covered, we don't mind. Yeah. So okay. So let's say, if you don't mind, uh, let me let's transition a little bit. So if I'm a new student and I'm going into um, into your club, right? What what could I expect? Like, how does that work? Well, the first thing is, do you turn up on time or not? <laughs> let's so, assume uh, that I do. Let's assume that I'm a good okay. student. Okay, yeah, that, 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 that's a good start. So if you turn up on time, you find a kind of a strange band of people waiting outside the doors to go in. Um, so you'll find all kinds of weird, colourful clothing because um, everybody used to be in black, but we encourage people to, do, to wear whatever they want in, in terms of HEMA. Yeah. Uh, you know, not sort of clown costumes or something, but if, if you want to go all out on your lounge net, I say that, you know, that's, that's my stuff. But, um, but if you want to go all out with really fancy food hosen, that's fine, all colours great. But there, yeah, so there's a mob of people waiting, loads of gear, sort of bag after bag, you know what it's like, or just mm-hmm. no matter how little stuff you think you're taking, it's still at least one carload. So yeah, there's loads of people waiting. If it's the Bristol Club, um, there's probably 15, 20 people waiting to go in. So they're not all there yet, but they're waiting to go in. Um, and people just start talking to you. Um, what well, You've got no choice, really. If you stand in there, you're going to get talked to by somebody. So they'll start talking to you, um, which usually means talking about swords. Mm-hmm. Um, and then before you know it, you'll be through the doors and we'll be getting started. And we start our warm-up immediately. Um, so that, that will be sort of a, a new person's first encounter of the club will be the warm-up, um, which is something we took um, partially from something we sort of found with our Scandinavian friends um, and also from our reenactment days, which is uh, it's a warm-up 
based on a game that's quite similar to dodgeball. Um, we get six balls, as in football, um, soccer balls. Or round type, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, six balls um, and two foam bucklers so that people don't get hurt with the bucklers. And everybody starts running around. So the hall builds up. So we go from 20, 30, 40 people in a big sports hall. Um, and you throw or kick the balls at people if it hits them. So the object is to hit people with the balls. If it hits them, uh, if you throw it and it hits them, 10 star jumps. If you, hit, if you kick it and it hits them, 10 press-ups. And we do that for a good 15 minutes or so. Um, so if you don't know anybody, the very first thing is you're thrown into this kind of horde of people running around, um, salivating with their victories as they sort of hit people mid-air with the ball and force them to do press-ups. Uh, and that's the first thing. So I, I tell new people the best way to get sort of introduced to a new group of people is to just try and hit them in the face with the ball. Um, <laughs> so it's fun. Um, it, the balls are soft, so you don't get hurt. Um, not much anyway. Yeah. Uh, and and also the warm-up is it's, an, it's a little nicer than the usual sort of traditional standing in rows, everybody stretching and doing stuff. Because you might get somebody that's, you know, older, you've got aches and pains, they've had sort of surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're fit, maybe they're not. Um, who knows? There could be all kinds of things. And it can be quite intimidating lining up and people doing stuff that you think, I, I couldn't do this 20 years ago, let alone now. But our, our warm-up, you can walk, you can walk, you can run, you can stand still. If you can't do the press-ups, then something else. So the only objective is that you're loose and warm by the end of it and you're sweating like crazy. Yeah. So um, dodgeball, I mean, in the States, we call it dodgeball. So basically, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's a free-for-all, so everybody just runs around. Um, once, oh, you've so it's, ball in your, yeah, once the ball's in your hands, it's like netball, so you can't move. Gotcha. So you're frozen. Um, but then you just boot the ball in any direction you like. If you, if, they, if you hit them in the face, you both get punished. Uh, <laughs> and if you catch the ball, the person that attacked you gets punished. Yeah. Uh, which it, it, it's, and, the, and then two people have bucklers as sort of wild cards. Mm-hmm. um so so they run around and they can deflect the ball hit them it's it sounds complicated but the main thing is that people are running around they're sliding on the floor they're jumping through the air trying to hit people and i honestly think if we just said we'll do that for two hours they would love it <laughs> it's you cannot stop them it's basically when the, when the warm-up is over people look disappointed so, yeah. so that's, that's that's the first thing we do so if, oh, if you're a new great. person if you turn up on time or a few minutes into the start that's what you'll see mm-hmm. which it that might put people off because they might look and think, well, where are the swords? So well, that hasn't happened yet. This is just getting you ready. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and then after that, we get started on the lesson. We got two clubs, um, one in England, one in Wales, uh, but still quite close to each other, 25 minutes apart because okay. we're, we're right on the border sort of, uh, in the March. Um, and, um, and each school runs, um, basically me and Nick alternates in the instructing. So at the moment, Nick is teaching small sword and sabre in Bristol. Um, I'm teaching long sword and mezzer in our, uh, in our Welsh uh, school. Um, and then we flip. So we do two months and then we change over. So we'll, I'll, um, I'll move to great swords as fire handers in Bristol. And then Nick will be doing, I forget what he's doing, but he'll be doing something else in Wales for two months. So there's a constant um, sort of rotation of weapons and systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick, Nick with a primary emphasis, not completely, but an emphasis on kind of Napoleonic, um, sort of spadroon, sabre, broadsword type stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then mine concentrating mainly on Maya and sort of 16th century um, stuff. So uh, Meza, Dussac, Longsword, um, uh, early, ra- early rapier, you know, side sword. Maya's rapier, that kind of stuff. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, we, 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 um, you then drill for 45 minutes to an hour. And then for the last sort of half or so of the session, everybody goes, get their kit, goes and get, gets their kit and then they fight. Uh, and you can do whatever you like then. So as long as you, as long as you have the gear and it, well, you know what it's like again with the sort of conditions and you fight to the person you're sparring with. So you kind of match kit and do what you like. You go sword and shield, bring your spears, halberds, axes, anything you like. For the sparring. Yeah, anything, anything's fine. Basically, sparring is it's time for you to do whatever you like as far as sparring is concerned. See, now uh, that's really fun. Uh, I like because um, it's pretty common to have your, you know, th uh, three uh, divisions in class, right? You've got your warm-ups, you've got your skill drill, right, the technique, and then the sparring. But you guys did something really fantastic with the warm-up, something super fun. You've got your technique drills, and then at the end it's sparring, but it's just free for all sparring, which is super cool. That's yeah, unique. Yeah, we do throw bits. Um, well, the other thing as well is that that's how we always did things. And um, we so I think we started two thousand and six. We hadn't seen another club, so it's not like we could see what everybody else was doing. So that, that's just the way we decided to do it. I honestly yeah. don't know quite how other groups do things because when we we do we go to sparring events or we travel to other schools and sort of teach at various things. But seeing a kind of a normal regular class is something different. But but one thing we well, when we had shorter classes of ninety minutes, we found there wasn't enough sparring time, and some people, myself and Nick included, were all about the fighting. The fighting is first; that's the bit we like. Yeah. Um, and we find because we weren't getting enough of it, we used to say, "Well, the last session of every month will be fighting only," mm -hmm. which is fine. But then there are some people that don't want to fight, so they wouldn't turn up, or they um, so or they treat it as an optional thing. So we changed it. We thought, being as we've got two hour sessions now, we'll keep the last. 50 minutes up to an hour, depending on how long the, the drills go on for. Um, and then you can just um, spar away. I mean, a lot of people spar with the things that we've been practicing. So if we've been doing saber and small sword, they'll go and do saber and small sword. But if you really, really, really love your long sword, do a whole hour of long sword. It's completely up to you. Yeah. Uh, and, it mean, and it means then that you don't, because there are some people that just aren't interested in certain weapons or are less interested. But, yes. um, but at least if you only have to drill it, so... Then maybe longsword's not your thing. There are some people who just don't like longsword. Well, you can drill it, but for the last hour, you can go back to your favorite sword. So if it's a spadroon, you can go and do that for an hour. Mm -hmm. So, so you're still going to get to do the thing you really like. So, um, yeah, we've been doing that for years now. And, yeah, uh, I like that. That's really cool. And the group fighting that you guys do—that's uh, that's kind of unique as well. And uh, that's something that I kind of wanted to get into. How do you manage that? How does that work? It looks like you guys are playing games. Like, tell me more. Um, yeah, well, the, well, the, the group fighting—it's um, an interesting one. That you know, we we we, we it's a sort of a spin-off in some ways for some of the training we do. So Nick did the the Pringle Green stuff, so the naval boarding action bits. So we we've got some scenarios we based on that. But but before that, we were doing group fighting anyway. Um, it, it comes down to whether we're doing it in class or if we're doing it at one of our sparring events, because we do a sparring event every three months where we invite anybody from any club to come and basically fight for four hours. Mm -hmm. um, and usually as part of that, last half an hour to an hour is group fighting. So we, we do various scenarios. Um, and they just tend to be slightly bigger than our normal ones. But um, there are, you know, most people are really into the melee stuff. Not everybody. Um, which which is understandable. Some people want to treat it more like um, you know it's a one on one. Um, there is, as you know from the stuff you do, it gets 
keep saying that, but that's because you do it. Um, okay. the, the minute <laughs> you yeah, the minute you include more than two people, you introduce a chaos, chaotic element. Yeah. And the more people, the more people you add, the more chaotic it becomes. Uh, and that can be a problem for some because it means you, know, you could be hit from different directions. Um, it's just a bit rougher and, and there's a bit of rough and tumble that not everybody enjoys. But for the people that do enjoy it, um, yeah, we really, we, we like to sort of, um, to experiment with the scenarios that aren't just one person versus one. Because we all do get into a habit of fighting like for like, which I think is, is, is not ideal all the time. So you practice longsword against longsword, saber against saber, spadroon against spadroon. Axe against axe, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and sort of um, sort of mismatch combinations are something we often miss out on. And then when you get a group fight, you find the strengths and the weaknesses of the kind of the weapon, even maybe one you like, um, completely change. Yeah. So you might feel super confident with a saber on your own, but then the minute you've got you know twenty people around you fighting on your side, and you've got a mixture of other weapons. Um, thrown in you'll find suddenly your saber is really good when they get close but as the halberds and the spears are coming for you you just you're wondering why you bother bringing the saber right. uh, um and that's um yeah that is interesting and we, we do have plans um what we really do want um is to be able to do you know we're, we're looking at sort of um, armor and weapons so we can do this sort of on a larger scale but we we want to be able to do a proper um, sort of 16th century block so we want to have pikes, helpers, right-handers, and small weapons in two groups, so that we can actually have some proper group fighting uh, with the kind of the military weapons of the period. Um, so Pringle Green stuff we can do because that's boarding action. So it's um, sort of boarding pikes are the biggest things. Um, pikes are unfortunately a problem because you we need them to break down because most people don't have vehicles that can carry pikes. Yeah, you know, sort of 14 to 18 foot pikes are a bit of a problem. It's kind of tough. So, but yeah, and, and then in terms of the melees, um, we, we keep changing it around because, again, because your life is not on the line, you need to introduce things to make it try and play out more as you would expect it to. So mm-hmm. when your life doesn't matter and you have a scenario with an objective, you can throw people away, which I appreciate is historical to a point, um, but you may not be quite so keen to volunteer to do it. Um, right. kind of rush forward and die so we we do try to introduce various things to get around that um so we keep changing it so we change it so people don't get used to it um and yeah yeah, there's an expectation that the fighter is going to live right like if you have your marching orders if you think i could get through this you're more likely to do it yeah that's why um we did um not last weekend, I think the weekend before, um, a friend of ours, um, uh, Jordan, that does the, runs the Academy of Steel in Cardiff, uh, his group running an event in Cardiff, a sort of two-day event, uh, and me and Nick were invited to teach a great sword class. So we did that, and as part of the class, we had um, two scenarios, both, both group scenarios. One was the military scenario, and one was the civilian. And the civilian scenario um, uh, was based on some of the kind of the original texts, which was using a large two-hander, sort of like a Montante or small spy-hander, um, to defend your property. So, uh, but but if you run it just as a simple scenario, it doesn't work. So you, your property, we just put an object on the ground, and you had to stop people stealing it. But if your life doesn't matter and you've got six um, scumbags with sort of cudgels, knives, um, a, t- a couple of them will die just running in to keep you busy so somebody can steal it. 
Yeah, but if you're yeah. but if you're a little mob of thugs and you want to steal somebody's property, you don't want to die. And as we know, with most groups of thugs, if you kind of beat down on the leader or the some the one that's causing trouble, you can usually break and make them run away. Uh, and in terms, I'm talking in terms of blazed weapons and fists, not when there are guns involved. But right, but, that, but that's well, not how. Yeah. So Even so to do, yeah. So so with that scenario, we sort of we thought we'd do a, a bottle out um, rule. So if anybody, if any of the um, uh, sort of mob, if any of them were hit, the rest of the gang panicked and ran away. Um, so we thought we do that, then suddenly they have to have a care for their lives. So if somebody's a bit of a prass and they move in close and then they try and duck down to grab the object and the spy hand hits them in the head, the rest of the group look at their buddy that's just been hit in the head with a two-handed sword that's basically bleeding out on the floor. And then they look at the little pouch with coin in or whatever it's going to be and they think ah, not today and they run so we thought yeah. we, so if you introduce an element like that suddenly the scenario becomes more interesting as opposed to how quickly can we steal it and how few people can we lose mm -hmm. so you know you're treating it more like a game then but you're you're introducing safeguards to make it more interesting and in that way suddenly the montante feels like a much more dangerous weapon because you don't want to die which is the thing you didn't have until you introduced right. the bottle-up rule. And you don't want to die. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So, yeah, we did that. And then we did the kind of the military scenario, which was supposed to be your, your pipe block has been sort of routed. Um, your standard has been sort of, is sort of uh, out in the open. Um, mm. so the officer was with the standard. Then you've got sort of eight doppelsolvers with their spy-handers, um, sort of will close ranks around the standard. And then the mob. So we, I think we had... It was either six or eight um, spyhanders, an officer, a uh, standard bearer, and a couple of guys with sabers, sort of like sergeants, or sort of similar. And then about 30 people attacking them. And they just have to go in a, basically as a mass and lose as few people as they could and take the colors. Um, yeah. And that was to give them an idea of using these big weapons in a, in a close group formation. And sadly, we didn't have a huge amount of time to practice it because um, me and Nick have done a lot of group fighting in the past, albeit reenactment fighting, but we have done large group stuff, you know, with sort of two, 3,000 people on the field. Mm -hmm. um, oh, wow, yeah. And, and one of the things that we found is that when people haven't done that before, they, they just don't work effectively as a group. So they basically they spread out in a line and they fight. They basically get tunnel vision, which is usually what happens in a melee. In fact, Isn't that interesting? Yeah, I, I say in, in a melee, I think any, any dangerous scenario is people tend to focus and narrow down on whatever's happening in front. Right. Uh, and that's why you need that buddy. You know, it's, it's interesting that uh, if, if I could just uh, steal a moment, um, mm. group fighting and those dynamics are just so different from that one-on-one. -on -one. Oh yeah. You get that one-on-one -on -one and you can zoom in and just hyper-focus on that person. But you do that in, in, uh, in a group fight, you're, you're not going to make it very long. You're just not, especially if the other team, if they've worked with each other, because all they're going to do is the front guy's going to lock you up and you're going to get ear hold from the side. Well, that's, that's where, all um, the time. yeah, that's where, um, I think Pringle green is good. Because mm -hmm. um, Pringle green is one of those rare manuals that actually discusses small unit fighting. There's in a few hundred people on each side. Yeah. And the one mm -hmm. thing that's quite obvious from Pringle green is that the individual training, um, other than the basics is not the thing that he's actually interested in. It's the, it's the management and control of small groups. Mm -hmm. So you have an officer, you have somebody in charge, you have a chain of command, so you have junior officers below them, you have groups of people that respond to the junior officer, 
And the way you use those groups uh, is the way that you change the fight. So individual epic fences are utterly useless. As you yeah. say, you, you can be super good, super in an excellent fencer, concentrating on two people in front of you. And the third person that joined last week stabbed you in the side because yep. you can't yep. know everything that's going on, or maybe you should. Because they rolled uh, a flank on you and you just didn't see it. Coming. Yeah, you just can't. And, and again, if you've got an officer or the equivalent, equivalent of an officer and they're you know, saying, keep him engaged, hit him from there. You know, they're, they're shouting the orders. They're managing the fight, not getting involved in the fight. Um, and that, that's its own skill is keeping them engaged, right? So you're not yeah. over committing, you're not fighting, but you're keeping them engaged. You're keeping them there. You're keeping their intention. You know, you want, you want them to stay right there. That's its yeah. own thing. Yep, exactly. And you think that's the classic sort of NCO with the small group as well. You know, it's, it's their job to make sure that people are not just locking in front and sort of, you know, if you're standing there and you can't see your friends to your sides, then you're either too far forwards or they're not there anymore. So you've got to do something. Um, and yeah, it's, it is really interesting because it does, it shows you individual performance is far less important than the group performance. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it does change things. You can get some, you can drill people in one hour and get them performing well in the melee, better, surprisingly well, compared to a group of people that have been fighting for years that haven't worked together. And you see them, they all go off and be their own individual heroes. And they probably do take, they may maybe take one or two out, but the numbers don't, you know, the, the mathematics don't work for them. Um, you know, it's, you know if, if one person's hacking at you, you can only have your sword in one place at one time. Um, and it's very hard to parry two swords when a third is coming for you. Yeah. And I, and I can't prove this. I can't prove this. But that's why I think the Greeks were so into sports. Because the, the guys who are working with each other, because uh, as we sort of described before, when you're spear and shield fighting, it's pretty basic. You're just looking for that opening and you're just spamming them with, with points trying to get, make something happen. But the magic is the group dynamic, right? Like what you're talking about. You got you to gotta see what's happening, especially in a phalanx. You got to make sure that, uh, that, you, that there's no gaps between you guys that, that they can exploit. You got to make sure that your, your flanks are, are, are covered. You got to make sure that there's someone calling the shots so everyone stays together, right? Like you're, what you're saying in Pringle Green. And um, those guys having played sports together... Hmm helps with that whole situational awareness yeah and and even when there's nothing actually on the line other than losing effectively a game um it's surprising how quickly things can fall apart when people think they're going to lose so yeah. the kind of the route the route that you think in terms of routing you think that would only happen in a an absolute panic but if you've got people and they there are gaps and then you can see a group in front of you are formed up and they're pushing um it doesn't take long before the people at the front want to move somewhere else Mm -hmm. and, and you go from maybe only being one or two people down to a whole group of just panicked and broken, and it happens really quickly. Um, and the only and the only way to stop it is to get them reformed and back in. And that's where that's where the people that have got the experience that get their group back into or bring in another group to replace them. Um, and, and that's where the, uh, the kind of the small group combat really comes in. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it also allows people that maybe don't have a huge amount of individual experience with fencing. They can really get stuck into it because they they basically they can they, they can actually have a much greater effect on the fights than if they were fighting on their own anyway. Yeah, but, yeah, and also and also it's just really good fun. Yeah. Uh, um, you know the the boarding action stuff is quite handy because it's bizarrely a sort of um, 
uh, is, is, is a sort of a recorded sort of um, uh, sort of thing. It's also um, quite important to us as in sort of Brits, um, just because kind of the naval boarding things sort of naval warfare itself is is sort of more significant to us than for a lot of other people, mm-hmm. so especially for the period um, and heavily recorded. But, but you're generally talking matter, matters of dozens to scores or hundreds of people. Um, so it, it fits in absolutely really well with these scenarios. And, and you can lay out, and if you look at the Pringle Green Manual, there are diagrams showing the layouts of ships uh, and in terms of where you can board and where they might be boarded from. So you, you can you can recreate a scenario where a ship is being boarded from two directions. Um, and you can do that with very few objects. Um, you know, you, you can set up a scenario with just sports bags, if you like. You know, these are the gunnels, you can't cross them. If you step over the gunnel here, you fall into the water and you're out. Um, so you have your crossing points. Um, you can put um, sort of sections uh, in the middle of the ship that can't be crossed. So they might be loading, um, I've got me call them. And we open up the doors and you load stuff in from the top. It's gone completely oh, out of my head. Yeah, like yeah. cargo door type things. Yep. Or boats. Um, you think you have boats on the deck as well. So you can just mark areas off that are dead zones. And you have your fight. Um, and and it, it is really good fun. And you've got people with their kind of reverse flintlock pistols and sabers, half pikes, sort of going at it all with their hatchets and their axes. Uh, and, and it's really good fun. And if you introduce rules... Um, that keep the fight going on a bit longer, so you have you have a system where they can come back after a certain amount of time for mm. sort of additional waves of people. Um, and we've had them where you know, they've where it's gone on for 10, 15 minutes and they're absolutely shattered, but they've got to do something to stop the other sort of side being able to bring any more people on. So they really have to push, and it gets really tense, and they're almost about to win, and then sort of one person manages to push them back, and then it all gets all the way pushed back. And, and you read about it, you, you look at some of the frigate sort of battles in the um, uh, so War of 1812, and you think you've got some of these sort of brutal frigate engagements um, with sort of, um, sort of ships you know, boarding and then counter-boarding and then going back at it again, and it's sort of going on for an hour. Um, so there's, there's some really juicy um, sort of um, accounts that you can incorporate into a really good scenario. That sounds super fun. And, uh, it, it, it is fun. Well, just the fact that um, I mean, because you, your club is probably one of the biggest out there, at least at least from my knowledge. We we've got about on a good night, we're getting maybe a dozen, maybe a dozen fighters uh, in adult class. So I, I I have a my youth class. It's it's a it's about a dozen people, anywhere from eight to a dozen show up, and and about the same for the adult class. But you guys, you're talking what thirty, forty people sometimes. Yeah, the um, like yesterday was um, quite below average. I think we were twenty eight or twenty nine okay. um, so for quite Bristol. A few. Yeah, that that that's our larger group. Um, we we normally have um, we, we'd expect thirty five up to forty, and mm-hmm. then sometimes it goes over that at Bristol. Um, the the Welsh school has always been smaller. Um, Wales is is it's got a much smaller population anyway, yeah. and um, and we're not next to. Any- cities so like our friends in the academy of steel are actually in the capital um so i think their their groups in the in the capital are sort of getting closer to what we are in bristol mm-hmm. um so yeah. our our welsh club is usually more like just into the double figures so between eight and 12 13 14 people in the welsh one um but that's you know where i said we're out in the country it's it's two door two roads down from my house so it's just in this village near um, near the border 
Um, but yeah, we, we've, um, I think we've got about 200 people actually on the books, uh, but they don't all turn up at the same time. Sure. Um, and we don't, we don't actively recruit people. We haven't done that for a long time. Wow. Um, you know, we, we do have the YouTube channel, mm-hmm. um, which um, we put content on, sort of, you know, reviews and instructional stuff. Uh, and that does um, sort of bring in a trickle of people. And, and that's enough to basically maintain numbers. So we'll, we haven't rec- we could probably do with some recruiting around here in, in Wales, but certainly in England, there's no point. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got loads of people. Um, but there are um, HEMA's you know, doing really well. You know, there are a lot of schools. Um, like when we run a sparring event, and our next one is uh, not this weekend, but the weekend after, so quite soon. Um, and in terms of groups around us, you know, we've got the Academy Steel, we've got um, a number of clubs in, in Wales. Um, we've got um, multiple clubs down in the southwest of England, up to the Midlands, where the, these are all places, but basically within an hour and a half to two hours drive, we've got dozens and dozens of HEMA schools. That's fantastic. Um, no, well, we're actually in a good position because we're, I don't know how well you know the kind of the geography of, I talk about these places and they, they may be meaningless, so I don't know. Well, I've looked at them on a on a on a map before, but I've but I've never been. So, but that's okay. A lot of people have, and so if if you want to describe well, it, it's fine. Well, if you take Bristol as kind of the kind of it used to be sort of like the greatest sort of city in the southwest, maybe it still is. I don't know. I don't live there, so I wouldn't say. But uh, but if you take that as the sort of the large sort of urban city, uh, and it's slap bang on a crossroads of motorways, sort of like the like freeways, um, so north, south, east, and west, so slap bang in the middle of a crossroad. Um, and if you um, if you head west, it takes you into Wales. Um, if you head east, it takes you to London. If you head north, it takes you to the Midlands, so Birmingham. Uh, if you head south, it takes you into the West Country, so all the way down to the south coast. Um, and so they're basically the two main arterial routes. So we, basically we can meet, um, like if you want to go to fight camp, you just go north of Bristol. Um, if you want to go to a London event, I mean, it's an hour and a half. To London maximum hour and 20 minutes or so just heading east uh, east yeah east um so we're, we're actually in a really good position even though we're sort of a fair way from London as in British terms a fair way I, I appreciate so hour and a half is not that really that far but for us that's a long way well uh, I mean geographically speaking for the entirety of the U.S. It's, it's not that big a deal but as far as like your daily what what you're willing to do in a day it's it's pretty far well, the, um, like when we started, we were the. Um, no, there was, I think, one other group in near Swansea in South Wales, but uh, we'd never even seen them. So we, we basically we were the only club really operating in, in the whole of South Wales, and southwest of England to any kind of note. Now there are in that same area. There's probably uh, at least twelve clubs just in that area. So there's there's basically wherever you are, there's going to be a club pretty much. Um, so there's lots of them around, and there are new ones now. Almost every month, there's another one forming. <laughs> so um, you know, people ask us all the time, you know, do we want to open up more, you know, sort of HFs? But uh, but I mean, it, we've got other things that we do. You know, fencing is you know is a big part of our lives, but it's not the only thing in our lives. Um, right. Two nights a week, plus all the other stuff that we do um, related to it, and even the, the videos that we search. Um, that takes up a good chunk of our time when we want to do other things, you know, right. as well. Now we we do a bit, a bit of um, you know a bit of war um, gaming or forty k or something on the weekends. Um, we you know if you want to do some reading that isn't fencing related, you know you you want some non hema time as well. Yeah. So we're not really interested. If other people want to set up schools, that's cool. 
but um, no, we've got ours. It's it's done well. It's been around a long time, and it, and, it, and it'll stay and it'll be around a long time as well. So mm-hmm. two two is perfectly fine for us. Yeah, that's 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 good. That's great. Yeah, uh, you know, I I think a lot of people, you know, who don't put out, uh, who don't have a YouTube channel, for example, that's a lot of work having a YouTube channel and making sure that. Uh, you know, if you care about it being big or whatever, or even not, you just want to put good content on. That takes a long time to sort of plan and prep, and the you know the the you know the lighting's got to look good, this and that. The editing, can you hear what I'm saying, and all that stuff. That takes a lot. It takes a lot to do for for people who who have never done it. Um, and then you know, uh, planning your classes that takes a long time. Like, um, we we go once a week, but I have. You know, I, I run two clubs kind of in, in parallel, um, and I probably spend, I don't know, I'd say probably between 15 and 20 hours a week, um, you know, just running the thing, this this whole deal. And like you say, I mean, it's I'm not making a, a bunch of money doing this. It's just I love it, and I want to share, and I need to cover the cost. And uh, I have a life, you know, I got... You know, just like everyone else, I, I I have my own life too. I got uh, yeah. I got I got a bunch of kids. I'm married and and uh, you know job, <laughs> all that stuff. So, uh, you know, you want to do is the cool sword stuff, but as soon as it becomes sort of a slog, there's this you know how much uh, to uh, I guess a, a a fun term these days is uh, the juice starts not to be worth the squeeze. I've not heard that, but it it, it makes sense. No, we, yeah. we we did, we did um, for a time. We did three a week, so we did Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, but we found if we did that, the the fencing basically became the thing you did when you weren't working. Yeah. So you were either working or you were fencing or getting ready for fencing, uh, and it's fine. And I know some people are really into it, and you know, kind of the fencing bit is basically their life outside of work. But um, but but not for us. You know, we've got other things as well. You know, as I said, it is a big part of it. But yeah, but same with you. you know, we've got other things in our lives as well that we want to get on with. So two yeah. sessions a week. You know, only a small number of our people go to both of them. Um, you know, one's in England, one's in Wales, but they are only twenty five minutes apart. So it's not like there's a huge distance. But uh, only yeah, a small number. Yeah, only a small number of people go to both. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's the, the, that's that's definitely the, the three was was a real pain. Um, you know, even if you wanted to say go and see a film at the cinema, which has kind of died since COVID, uh, we've actually been since then. But mm-hmm. um, but even then, um, before that, if you wanted to go to say the cinema, it would be sort of if you're working three nights a week for fencing, and that's not even your work. It's sort of in terms of downtime, uh, and we've all got sort of partners. Um, you know, you sort of spend time with them as well. Um, yeah, it doesn't leave if a lot. You want to keep them, you do. Yeah, yeah, you can't, you can't just be out fighting all the time. Um, and yeah, I find I think two a week is good. Um, and there are other clubs as well. So if you want to do more, you can go and train with them as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, assuming you've got more. But uh, but we've yeah. certainly got plenty around us. If you want, if you wanted, you could you could probably practice every night of the week and travel no more than an hour. Yeah, no, that's kind of unique. I mean, we have some uh, where where I'm at. So we're uh, in Vancouver, Washington, which most people, huh. even in the U.S., don't understand that there's a, a that there's a Vancouver inside the U.S. It's it's. Uh, it... I've been to Vancouver and Washington. Oh, have you? Okay. Um, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in the north, in, in the sort of northwest. Okay. 
Yeah, no, I, I love it here. I'm a transplant. I, we moved here about six years ago. I, I grew up in, in uh, San Diego area, so that's kind of that's kind of where I hail from. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, there's there's some good uh, there's some good clubs around here. Uh, most of them are, are south, you know, into into Oregon a little bit. But like you say, they're like 30, 45 minutes, maybe in, in heavy traffic, probably about a half an hour. So, yeah, I mean, you can you can definitely club hop around here if you wanted to. That's nice. And Vancouver as well is not too dissimilar to where we are in terms of the way it looks. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, I should say as in the when you get into the countryside in, in yeah. terms of hills, water and weather, it's not vastly different to uh, to where we are, or at least my, my experience. So uh, to the top end of Oregon, moving into Washington. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it felt quite familiar. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's weird. I, I like it. So um, I, I wasn't born in, well, I was born in Arizona. So I'm, I'm a Western kid, a desert kid. And, uh, you know, moving to California, it's kind of like, oh yeah, it's uh, it's desert, but with some really cool palm trees and, you know, the beach is close by and stuff like that. Um, but coming to Washington, it's like my body really liked it. Um, you know, I did an Ancestry.com thing, and uh, it turns out that um, a fair bit of my ancestors come from Manchester area. And so, okay. yeah, and, and, you know, I don't know what that means exactly. I, I've seen Manchester in a map. I've never been. But, yeah, I know something about my, my body really liked the, the weather here, and I felt like uh, in, in a weird elemental way, like, oh, I'm kind of sort of coming home. You know, it's, it was weird. Yeah, so you're turning into an honorary Brett because you just talk about <laughs> weather. <laughs> well, yeah, we talk about weather every day in uh, in Vancouver, Washington. It's I, again, it's pretty similar, I suppose. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, um, Washington State. It's it's nice. I I very much like going there. It's a kind of temperate climate, the, the mm -hmm. countryside, and I live in the country myself. Okay, uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, I like I, I like the greenery. Um, I like hills, trees. Um, yeah, it's. You know, it all felt quite familiar. Just everything's bigger, but you know that's the American way, isn't it? Uh, we try to make it that way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. I spent a lot of time in Oregon as well. Um, well, I haven't been there for sort of two decades now. Yeah. But yeah, we really like the the Northwest. It's. Uh, well, saying that, you know, I have there hasn't been anywhere I've been in the U.S. I haven't liked. Um, I spent most of my time on the West Coast, a bit on the East, but. Uh, okay, West Coast is better. I prefer the West Coast, but that doesn't mean <laughs> the East Coast isn't good. <laughs> No, I, you know, I, I have a sister and, and her husband and they live in, in, uh, in, um, in, uh, in New York and I, boy, where, 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 I know where they live. They live in Brooklyn and, uh, you know, so, th so they're all over and I love New York city. Uh, it's a cool place to visit. I, I, um, it's, it's not for me to live. I kind of, I'm like you, I like the greenery. I like the countryside a little bit better. Um, so I kind of, I live in the suburbs, but it's the gateway to the wilderness where I live. So it's kind of cool. Five minutes just down the road, there's a cool trail I can take and it's like, I'm nowhere. So. Yeah. Well, that's, um, yeah, it's just very much, it's, it's bizarre because where I am and I'm, I think I'm 10 minutes from the motorway. So I, I've got a pretty much a direct link to the motorway and then there are the bridges that go over into England, but, um, but I'm right in the middle of the old March. So it's the old kind of, um, uh, so the middle ground between England and Wales historically, okay. sort of the uh, kind of um, kind of the lawless area. That's um, we got, you know, we got sort of six hundred castles in the march. 
Um, <laughs> you know, it's um, you know, um, where I live. It's a small village in um, at the bottom end of Monmouthshire, and um, there's basically we got one pub, two churches, um, and a post office. That, that's all we have. Um, and the but the actual village, you know, it's that the houses, most of the houses are inside the Roman walls. So um, and, unlike most of the Roman towns and cities in Britain, um, this one was never built on. So there were Roman walls built quite late, so around 200 AD or so, and most most of it's still intact. So all of the perimeter walls are there. Um, and then and then once so once it was abandoned in sort of the fourth century, um, it was just left ignored for sort of a thousand years or so and pillaged a little bit for stone, and then the village was built sort of in the middle of it but just houses and the church and stuff and then nothing else was really built here so and if you want to go and walk the dog you open the front door cross the road and then you've got the roman walls in the middle of the roman walls you know there's uh, an anglo um anglo um, um sort of romano british uh, temple the old forum um some shops and villas and stuff that have been sort of unearthed and, and underneath the grass everywhere here is roman so it's all covered up because we basically nobody comes here but if you went if you've got a shovel and dug you'd find you know mm. roman structures everywhere here so so we've got that on our doorstep and then um eight miles back towards newport you know there's castles there and then the roman amphitheater and the barracks for the second augusta legions there and going the other direction to chepstow that's sort of five minutes away there's a castle there Let's do them. So yeah, we got some really cool stuff. Uh, well, some cool stuff. Yeah, that's really cool stuff. Yeah. That can be more specific than that. But we've got. No, I put every, every week whenever I take my dog out. I'm always taking photos of my dog visiting some other place. Um, but he's usually at Tintin Abbey or Raglan Castle, and nearly every week. So we're kind of we're, we're spoiled with all those old structures, sort of right on the doorstep. Yeah, that's that's oh man, that's amazing. We have Fort Vancouver, which is actually not the real Fort Vancouver. It's sort of recreated Fort Vancouver. So I think it was built in I don't know, it's 1976 or something like that. But it was built on the like the original spot. But that didn't get there till like what 17, like mid 1700s or something like that. Isn't that the one that's got a sign that's erected and it says sort of the British are coming? <laughs> well, maybe it did it at one point, but yeah, it was a British fort. We just kind of, well, we bar we're borrowing it for a long period. That's fine. Thank you. Took it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 the northwest is a nice is a nice place. It's uh, yeah, it's, it, it makes we feel very at home, sort of going somewhere like that. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I mean, all the all the the things that are named, right? You've got Vancouver, and then we have the the mountain, which is Mount Hood. And that's you know named after the the same person that that uh, the dreadnought was named after. No, it's not a dreadnought, was it? It, it was a battleship. So, well, uh, people argue about that. It, it was technically a battle cruiser, uh, but okay. um, it, it was sort of built right at the end of the First World War. Okay. Uh, but um, but then the technical difference between a battleship and a battle cruiser at that time is down to the percentage of um, sort of mass given over to armor. Okay. Um, but but it, it was technically, if we had had a whole list of treaties, it would have been the first of a new generation of battle cruisers. Uh, instead, it ended up being the only one. So, which is why it was so big. So it looked it looks completely at, and it's actually slightly bigger than the Bismarck. People don't realize it. It's sort of battle really? cruiser, but a tiny bit bigger. And it was um, and it and it had been up armored so many times and had so much basically added to it over time. That if you look at it, it's very low in the water. 
So if you look at the stern of the ship, you can see the um, upper deck. It sits really low. It's quite wet towards the rear of the ship, Whoa. just because of all the extra armor added. Because it's basically it's a World War One ship, mm-hmm. um, and the Bismarck was a brand new, effectively yeah. state of the art sort of Nazi warship. Right. But um, yeah, and we, we sort of I think of Hood. We've got um, we've got like a, a Royal Navy monument up in one of the hills, and it's got um, uh, it's basically dedicated to all the Royal Navy captains and admirals. Um, from um, from sort of Trafalgar and the Battle of the Nile, um, because the trees used to all be um, sort of basically all of the woodland was used for growing trees um, to be used for the battleships, you know, the ships of the line. So um, uh, up in Monmouth. So um, yeah, yeah. So it's okay. even though we're not right next to the water, although again I say that we're not next to the water. You know, we're never that far from the water. Yeah, because can't you? Um... Maybe not these days, but I mean, the rivers are super navigable, aren't they? I mean, that's kind of the beauty of, of the UK, isn't it? Like you could go from the ocean and maybe even load onto maybe a smaller barge. But those barges go all the way through the whole, almost the entire country, doesn't it? Yeah, the, you know, where I live, the um, you, know, you can't now, but uh, in the Roman period, you could bring a barge into the village. Um, so um, if, if you, if you um, scan the ground um, to the, on the south part of the village... Um, there is still actually water running underneath the ground. Um, so there was a waterway there, a navigable waterway. So you could bring a ship to the coast, so on the Bristol Channel, and then you could bring barges up the water, um, you know, along the water straight up to um, straight up to my village, which is in Kuwent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's, um, you know, nowhere's very far from the water around here. And I, 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 I consider we're sort of quite far away, but we're actually, I think, five minutes maximum from the sea. So I suppose we're actually quite close to the sea. <laughs> I can actually see the sea from my upstairs window. Can you? That's bad. No, just about. I can see the bridge. I can see the bridges crossing into England. So if I could see the ground, the water below it, then I would. But unfortunately, there's land in the way. Yeah. So yeah, we're not that far away. So yeah, we do. We do have have good access to water. It sounds like a very wonderful spot to be. Um. Well, I, I think so. Um. Uh, to be fair, I think um, no, we've all got quite interesting places to be. But um, then Nick, you know, I think he's 10 minutes down the road and he's in a large town, well, technically a city now. Um, he's sort of 10 minutes away, 10, 12 minutes away from where I am, um, which, which is which is quite weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, it, it, yeah, because, I mean, my, my brothers are like a thousand miles here. In I, well, my, my, my sister's in Switzerland, so... So okay. we're, not, we're not all close uh, close by, but she she runs a school in Switzerland, mm-hmm. uh, a school school, not a not a human school. Yeah, right. Very so, cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, sounds like we're about ready to wrap this thing up. But uh, really quickly, um, advice for someone who just discovered HEMA, they okay. went down the rabbit hole on YouTube and they're very interested. So what would be some advice that you would give these guys? But um, the first first thing, yeah, as um, I'd get onto social media and find somewhere um, like an over, um, an overarching group um, for whichever country or place you're in. So it, where I am, there, there are various UK HEMA groups on Facebook. They're not official boom groups. They're just you know just groups set up um, so that people from around the UK can talk about HEMA. Find one of those. Post in there and find out where your local groups are. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't go onto Google or something um, just because 
um, even now in 2023, there are some people running groups that are just not really up on setting up websites and stuff. So they might have a really good school and they've got no actual proper website, even though it seems weird, but there are plenty of people that still don't. So yeah, go, go, go somewhere like Facebook, find your kind of your national talkie group where people just talk about HEMA. Um, or it may not even be called HEMA, it may just be called historical fencing, which is what we always used to call it. Um, so sort of find it's a, a over- come back. Yeah, I, I always preferred historical fencing just because it's that's actually what we do. We were interested yeah. in fencing with historical weapons. The actual geographic location and time period wasn't that important to us. No, really. But, um, but so, so find something like that where people are talking about fighting. Find out where your local groups are because it's all about people. Um, and as you said, you can learn sort of you know, a good chunk of saber on your own. But ultimately, you want to find people to train with or to fight with. Otherwise, you're just shadow boxing all the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you yeah, find that. Find out where your local groups are. Contact them and then get your backside to one of them and have a look. Um, you won't know till you go and see them. See what you think of the instructors. See what you think of the session. Um, go to a few of them, see which one kind of fits around, you know, the kind of things you like. You know, they're really hardcore and they're all like Cobra Kai, um, sort of all sort of neat units and sort of everybody drilling like a sort of a, like a regiment. That might be the kind of thing you want or you might prefer something a little more casual. Um, so if you've got multiple groups, go and check them out. Um, and if you like it, um, before you buy anything, talk to the instructors and people always go off and buy stuff, and we all have finite resources. Even if you're doing really well, you still only have so much money to spend on stuff. Everybody makes mistakes. And my first sword was a really big mistake, um, and um, and so, so you don't want to waste your money. But better to um, spend the money on even stuff that's not particularly exciting, that doesn't cost a huge amount of money, and so you can get started. Because um, what you'll probably want to do is you want to buy a sword. And that's the first thing you want to do because you're interested in swords. You're not joining a club because you want to buy a mask. Um, you're gonna, you want to join a group so you can buy a cool sword. Um, so, yeah, so find, find out, first of all, kind of the, 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 an overriding group, uh, a, a talking place in your country or region. Um, nail down some local groups. Introduce yourself. Go and see them. Try them out. Don't spend any money. Um, try, really try and keep that wallet closed for as long as possible uh, until you can see what's going on because um, you might think everybody's using long sword or buy that but then you find out I actually really like Sabre and now I can't afford to buy that Sabre mm-hmm. um, so to definitely talk to your instructors it's the number one answer I would give to everybody about every question to do with HEMA is talk to the instructors in the group you decide to join because um, every group has different requirements there might be some rules they might have some really good discounts with certain suppliers and you don't know if you don't ask you don't find out so um yeah talk talk to the instructors um and also if you don't like a particular group for whatever reason if it's just not for you and um, see if there's another one that you can go and try it find one that actually matches what you want because everybody's different um everybody you know they'll be looking for different things for the club you know that a, a group might be really interested in a particular weapon or just one-on-one combat or group combat um, or they might just be really into the athletic side of it, love ringing, ringing, and you maybe really just don't want to have people sort of touching and throwing you around all the time. So why would you train there? It's not your thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but always just keep coming back all the time to talk to the instructors because um, they're the ones that have been doing it ages. They've they've seen all the junk. Um, they they know the stuff not to to mess around with. Yep. Um, they'll save you so much money, and you can buy all the pretty stuff. Then, like you know, your nice shield behind you, 
you can actually buy a cool shield rather than <laughs> a sword that maybe you know, like like um, we've had people that have turned up to when we've been running a class a third, you know when we went to our first bike camp back in 2008 I think it was I was teaching a Mesa class and a guy turned up with a sharp katana for the class oh yeah um, and again you know you might have bought that because you really like swords well that's fine but you can't use it for training right so um, th that's what I would do first, and then and then once you get uh, once you get started, you're you're kind of just the kind of the structure of what you do. Well, it's basically going to fit around the class anyway, so you shouldn't have to think too hard about that. Um, and then and then just go with it. But but definitely, um, the instructors will save you a lot of heartache. And assuming they're not really bad instructors, <laughs> in which case, well, no, yeah, they yeah, could cause you loads of heartache. Um, <laughs> that's good advice. Yeah. Um, just, just because I know I've, I've known so many people, and they they don't listen. That you talk to them, and you say, you know, they're getting started. Buy some synthetic swords um, to get started if you're not too sure about things. Mm -hmm. So over in the UK and the rest of Europe, the black fencer stuff is easy to get and cheap. I know they're a bit of a pain to get in the US. Yeah, um, all the good stuff is kind of a pain to get in the US. You can get that's... purple hearts, purple heart stuff. You can get which is real pain for us. Oh well, that's true. And Purple Heart stuff is is um, it's very functional. I have some of the stuff. Great people to buy from. Um, they don't look as nice as the Black Fencers, though. The Black the Black Fencers stuff. I mean, we've we've been we've been buying from them and talking to them and with them for years and years now. Yeah. Um, and they develop and they improve all the time. So um, and it, with our people, I would recommend unless there's something you know you really want it, um, go synthetic. Buy a few items yeah. that aren't too expensive. So they're new versions of their sabers and long swords with the kind of the nice edge profile on them. Um, you know they're balanced, they handle nicely, they uh, they kind of stick and bounce better than they used to, um, mm -hmm. and and everything is just so cheap. And then their steel range. You know my um, my main saber that I use is my eighteen oh three slotted hilt, and it's called Goldie because it's gold, um, and um, <laughs> and it's died three times, and every time they've it's basically it's gone back to them like Narsal and it's come back um, oh, better and stronger than ever. Um, and, it, and it's just my favorite sword. And you think they started off making synthetics um, and now they um, and now they make really, really good steel. So. That's so cool that they've just watching them expand from from the synthetics to the steel. And I thought, OK, those are pretty cool looking. So, yeah, well, it's good got, to hear that they take care of you like that. We've got loads. Like, we've got an order with them at the moment, and it's, it's many, many thousands of pounds worth of swords that we've, that's about to be shipped to us. Yeah. Um, and basically, as soon as we have an order arrives, we put in another order straight away. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, they're, 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 really, they're really good guys. And I'm saying that there are loads of really good HEMA companies out there. But, mm -hmm. um, but so Black Fencer is, and if you look around our club, there's Black Fencer, Black, Black Fencer stuff everywhere. And they're always experimenting um and we're always trying to get them to experiment to m make other exciting interesting things yeah, but yeah the, the yeah. stuff's great um ugh, i'm not gonna start getting stuff off the wall because that'll you're, 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 you're <laughs> running <laughs> you're out. i've got loads, yeah. loads of stuff there but um yeah we've you know, the synthetic sword is is actually is one of the things i've forgotten about in, in terms of if you're just getting started you're not quite sure what to do synthetics will save you a fortune uh, yeah they're not the same as steel but they're a lot better than say using foam or wood um, and I use my synthetics nearly every session. Like last night, uh, I did, a, I did, uh, yeah, I didn't do any long sword, but, um, I did Dussac, Mazza, side sword and, um, and Sabre and 
and it was a mix straight down the middle of steel and synthetic. Yeah. And you can just flip, flip yeah. between them. Um, and yeah, they're, 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 and they're cheap. I, I can't remember how much a Sabre is over here. I think it's about 60 quid. I think really? I think it, or maybe 70 quid. I, 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 I hope this is not going to be like one of the politicians is asked about the price of a loaf of bread. No, no, yeah. Three well, times more. By the so, time they get here, they're just over 100 bucks. Okay, so yeah, it's about 80 quid over here. So yeah. they're, they're probably about 70 then, thinking about it. So you, you pay um, you pay the sort of the colony tax. Um, yes, we do. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, saying that we, we pay a tax as well because we're not we're not part of the European Union anymore. So we oh, we, uh, right. we get we get to pay VAT on stuff coming in. Yeah. But um, yeah, their the, the stuff is um, is exceptionally good, and there's so many suppliers. Um, you know, um, Kaviten in um, not Russia anymore. Wherever they've gone to, Georgia. Georgia now, yeah. yeah Georgia. Um, you know, they, they make really great stuff as well. I love my Kaviten. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've um, I've got I've got quite a bit of their stuff. Uh, in fact, yeah, again, I'm not going to put. In fact, that's <laughs> the that where it is. That one there, the side sword there, that's a Kevin. That's a that's a. Oh, Kraken, I thought it was a Kraken sword above it from one of your uh, from one of your American friends. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. There's and then there's all the skibones over there, which you can't quite see. You can see the blades, but you can't. Yeah, we gotta see those. Oh my gosh, those are just gorgeous. Look at those. Uh, that, that's a mixture, I think, of Darkwood, Danelli, Swordsmithy, Black Fencer. Mm -hmm. And that's a, at the top, it's a Kavitan um, Dussac, which is a copy of my original. Um, but yeah, some really, there's, there's the suppliers, it's, it's so much better than it used to be. Mm -hmm. You've got so much to choose from. Yeah. Well, I differ a little bit, um, but this might just be because I, I have synthetics, right? So if I didn't have a synthetic, I'd be like, oh, no, I think I want to get some synthetics. But I've kind of come, uh, gone round and round. Now I recommend for new people just to get uh, like a rattan stick, like a single stick, and, yeah. and go from there, and then just go straight to steel. But that's just because in my club I have a bunch of, of synthetics that they can use, right? But I, I kind of like what you said, because if you don't, if you don't have access to that, you're going to want to get your own synthetic. I mean, this is true, because it's exactly what I would want, because it looks like a sword. It has an edge, it has a flat, right? And so that's really important to understand. That, that's also why you need to talk to your instructor, because um, the way we do things is can't and won't be the same as you. We're in a different country, we have different suppliers and a different sort of approach as to how we do things. So um, black fencer is cheap and easy in the UK. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. cheap and easy in the US, um, or certainly not as cheap and as easy. So it's it, um, yeah, it's not it's not the same. So um, yeah, we, we do things differently. Um, so definitely, always talk to your instructors. <laughs> I, I, I labour the points, but people don't, and it it was it will save you so much hassle in the long run. Um, we do make a big and quite extensive use of the foam swords now. Not as a sort of a primary kind of line, not line, um, not as a primary um, sort of weapon for everybody, um, but they're a really good um, thing to have in the bag. Some, somebody brand new turns up and they've got nothing, you put a mask on their head, a phone sword in their hands, and they can fully participate in the class. Mm -hmm. and, and not being able to participate in a class really sucks. And if you, if you turn up, you drill with everybody, and then you have to go and stand at the side and watch. Well, nobody, nobody turns up at fencing to stand and watch. No. Nope. So uh, they've got to be able to participate. So, like you, with you know, same with the rattan sticks. 
Um, it's something that is you know, affordable and doable. Um, for, for us, the foam swords allows them to get fully involved. And in the first mm -hmm. session, they can experience what it's like to fight. And it's, you know, it's stressful and exciting. Um, and you've got somebody that wants to hit you, but also it's not like boxing where you're going to get hit. You're, they're just going to make you know, basically touch contact. So, yeah. so you don't have the worry of kind of the injury, but you do have the stress of somebody leaping around and you can't see the sword and then suddenly it stabs you in the head. Um, and then you think, oh, I want to hit them. And then the next thing you know, it's the end of the session. You think, well, I'm, all I'm already pumped now. I really I want to do that. So um, yeah, for us, foams are really good. And also if people are tired, um, if they want to strip down, they've just got their t-shirts and their trousers, um, put the mask on, last 10 minutes, they can just do some light sparring, uh, completely stripped down, nice and cool, nice light weapon, and they can still get the exercise. Um, and of course, they're not wearing all the gear now, so it's it's much more like a sort of one-on-one uh, -on -one civilian fight. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we, we 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 really really like them. <laughs> Very cool. You know what? That's a, that's some good advice. I, I know we've spent a lot of time on that, but uh, for for new people just getting into HEMA, excellent advice. Um, is uh, final words? Is there anything else that you got for us today? Well, about HEMA or just in general? Anything, anything you want to talk about? Um, the last Mandalorian episode kind of was disappointing, but <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, so I well, did no, hear no, that it was disappointing. Yeah, no spoilers. Um. No, no, not not really. Um, I, um, if, in terms of if anybody wants to talk about sort of HEMA or writing or sci-fi or anything, um, just get online and find some people that are interested in the same kind of things and have a chat with them. I, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about those things. Um, Very cool. So, yeah, yeah, just um, it, well, I know that sounds like an advert for where to find me, but um, but yeah, that's I, okay. We got show notes at the at the podcast, right? So. Uh, Cool. So we are going to have show notes, uh, uh, links. I mean, you know, that's part of what we do. Guys, um, you know, HEMA, the historical fencing community, is still pretty small, and we're a bunch of like-minded, you know, people. We share certain interests and hobbies. I think it's important for us as a community to to support each other, right? It, it just makes for a better community. And so, you know, I'm just going to shamelessly say it. We got show notes uh, with links, so if you're interested in... in uh, reading some of michael's books uh you know we can you can certainly um give it a go there um obviously there's there's uh the club right uh, academy of historical fencing that he and nick run um i encourage you if you're in the area to check that out um you know i'm not ashamed to say it, it it's important that that we make sure that people understand what we offer right yeah there's um yeah it's definitely um and, and also you, you look at all kind of the fencing stuff we do um, they, they, this, I don't know if that was, that's never worked before. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza's um, yeah. Um, there's, um, where was I? Completely lost my train of thoughts. Um, yeah, in, in terms of, um, there's all kinds of people that you've never even heard of or talked to before. Um, you find them and then they've got a whole new spin or idea on something you're interested in. Um, so there might be a particular technique or uh, something about a sword. Uh, concentrate on the content, uh, I'd say, is, is the number one thing. The things they're talking about, um, that people are complicated, um, and you just need to be interested in the bits that are, are relevant to you when it comes to HEMA. So if I find people that they've got stuff to talk about with swords or equipment or techniques, um, find them, talk to them about it. There's, there's really good groups um, online 
um, you know, Facebook, there's loads and loads of groups on there. Um, just, just have a troll, have a look, have a look on YouTube, find people that sound like they know what they're talking about and then talk to others, you know, see if what they're talking about makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, talk to your instructors. Your instru- instructors are a really good focal point. If you want to find YouTube channels, um, 16th century fencing, go and talk to your instructors. They might tell you to go and check out sort of, uh, I think it's Bjorn Ruther, who's got a really, really good Maya channel. Um, I drop him messages every now and then just to annoy him. But you know, <laughs> if you want to go and find out something, they'll point you in that direction. You'd never find out otherwise. So you've got to get yeah. out there and talk to people. Um, and there's never been a better time the amount of information out there, the amount of people out there, um, just be focused um, and so you know what you're looking for uh, and just stop talking to people. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and thank you for that. I, I, I Like you said, maybe it's just the, the, the uh, American in me. I, I just, historical fencing is what it is and it's wonderful and it's different things to different people. But one thing that I want to see um, is more colloquial respect for what we do and at least uh, at least a, a, a sort of understanding that it even exists as its own thing right everyone knows what karate is everyone knows what jujitsu is everyone knows what what kendo is everyone knows what olympic fencing is everyone needs to know what historic fencing is and each culture has their own historical fencing so it's not even about hema you know it's not about historical european martial arts right that's just as you said the regional thing that's not important it's just the historical fencing is the most important thing and uh in a very interesting way it kind of grounds us to our 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 past and it but not in a weird way it's it, what i'm trying to say is it is it um it it gives us something to celebrate that was in all of our past and it's something that grounds us and makes us feel good it's something to do it's something to uh accomplish it's a challenge and um you might learn something of your you will learn something about yourself as you participate in this sort of activity whether you call it a hobby or a sport or an activity whatever you call it right if you take it seriously you're going to learn something about yourself you're going to learn something about others and you're going to get into a community that is so enriching you guys will have cool things to talk about and um i i alluded to this and in, in um hey i got a question for you are you hearing a weird feedback or is that just me no nothing here okay good it's my no. headphones i think i'm gonna have to get a, a different pair it's going to be- no no it all sounds fine here yeah okay good good uh, maybe in the final it won't sound this way but anyway i so what, what i'm trying to say is is if you feel like you need something more in your life might i suggest historical fencing because along the way you're going to find some really interesting people and you're going to have shared experiences with these interesting people and i have this kind of this idea right and this isn't for everyone but it's for people who who voluntarily want to participate in this the the one way to forge a, a bond of friendship, a strong bond of friendship, is going through a shared difficult experience together. Whether it's like a camping trip, say, uh, you know, that's kind of low level discomfort, or an adventure, a full on adventure, right? Where there's some setbacks and hardship, but in the end, ultimately, you discover something really interesting. Well, martial arts is kind of like that, and uh, historical fencing is a lot like that. It doesn't matter how good you are, you're gonna get hit. And so there's there's a little bit of discomfort or even pain associated with that. And I'm not talking about injury. But as we experience that together, 
that's what bonds us. So that little bit, I'm just going to call it pain, that little bit of pain that everyone shares together, uh, it, it binds us together. And I don't mean it in a weird way. I mean it like in, um, it's just a, um, it's just a shared experience. I don't know how else to, to put it. And it's like your buddies become your blood brothers, your, your blood brothers, I should say. Um, I don't know if that's a little woo-woo out there, and I don't know if that's too much. And you don't even have to get into that to get into historical fencing. But along the way, it just sort of happens. Well, yeah, and pe- people will take it. Um, it'll be more important to some people than others. But, yeah. they'll, 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 but they'll go as deep as, they, uh, as, as it takes them. So some people will turn up, they'll do their session, and maybe they won't think a huge amount about it, about it till the next one. But there will it's still be... It's not about pain, right? It's not about yeah. that. But um, but you, you see people that when they start and they you know they they they're they're, um, they're finding it hard to breathe because they're stressed, not because they're not fit. Yeah. Um, yes. So just because they're not their 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 chest is tight, they're forgetting to breathe. They're really struggling. Maybe they're re- they're super fit and they just they can't handle it. They're getting walked all over the place. Um, and then you see three months later that they're sparring with kind of the regulars and they're holding their own. Uh, and you can see the they they, they are transformed. Um, the way the way they stand, um, mm-hmm. instead of sort of slouched, you can see them more upright. Um, they're um, they're more confident. Even the way they speak, it's almost like police academy sort of. Uh, I forget the lady's name, but the the lady that's really quiet. Yeah, um, you're talking um, the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's that bit too old. <laughs> so, um, but you'll, but, you'll, but you'll see people, they'll become a little more assertive just because they, they're relaxed. They're feeling a little bit more competent uh, around, uh, around basically their friends that they've made. Um, and, and I see lots of people and they, and it might even take them a year, um, but they do come out of their shells um, because they've got one, even, even if there's nothing else they've got in common, if they maybe disagree about everything. Um, but the minute they turn out to fencing, um, they're all doing, they, they basically, they all like fencing um, and they've got better and they can, they can fight somebody and they can hold them to a certain standard. And yeah, they, they look different and they, and they treat each other differently as well, mm-hmm. um, which is excellent. Very good. All right. I think, uh, I think we're going to stop there. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Thomas, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'd like to have you back on the show some other, some other time if you're willing of course. Wonderful. And uh, so I'm just signing off here, guys. Remember to slay your demons, and uh, we'll catch you on the next show. Make sure you take a look at the show notes if there's something that uh, is interesting for you. And, uh, yeah, have a nice one. Thanks for having me.